determining how to structure the purchase of a hobby farm by talking about firstly the upfront structuring of the purchase and choice of entity, and then talking about some of the consequences that may result from that choice later down the line, such as duty on transfers between family members. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accounts, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 290 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to class for sponsoring this episode. How do you structure the purchase of a hobby farm? And when I say hobby farm, I mean a commercially operated farm that is, however, relatively small, let's say less than 1,000 hectares, but also relatively expensive since within two to four hours of a capital city. And so a farm of that size in that location is unlikely to make an operating profit when you consider the cost of land, hence the term hobby farm. So in this episode, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne is going to discuss with you how you structure the purchase of such a farm. We've got Bob and Sally. They want to buy a farm and run it as absentee owners for a second income. They want to use the farm to run some cattle. And the land that they're looking at has an old farmhouse, which will be uh, used by Bob and Sally to stay on when working on the farm. Bob's on the top marginal tax rate and Sally has a marginal tax rate of, of zero, meaning she doesn't have enough income to go over the tax-free threshold. Sally's also a sole shareholder of a company with substantial tax losses that have been carried forward. So the aim of Bob and Sally is to firstly get the, the farm to qualify as primary production land, therefore being exempt from land tax. Secondly, to negatively gear the land against Bob's income. And we'll come back to that in, in a lot of detail. Thirdly, is potentially to use the company's carry forward tax losses to offset any farming profits. And then down the line, there may be a transfer of the farm to the uh, children of Bob and Sally in some time frame down, down the line, whether 10 or 20 years. And obviously, they'd want to do that in the most tax effective way possible. So those are the goals. So how should they structure the purchase of the farm? Is it possible for Bob to acquire the land, but then for Sally to run the farming business within her company or within a separate entity that is then owned by the company? How should the whole thing be structured to meet those goals? Yeah, and there's so many considerations here. And, and as a general comment, when you're looking at these sort of decisions about Uh, how to structure an acquisition, you will often not be able to meet all of your objectives through one particular structure. It might be that option A is going to be better for some aspects, but option B is going to be better in, in other aspects. And where that's the case, which it often is, it's ultimately which of those drivers are the most important. So, There's tax drivers and then there's also other drivers. So before we go into the tax drivers and, and some of the tax issues to consider, 
there there is also non-tax issues to consider like protection from creditors yeah you yeah well so the first one being protection from creditors which is commonly referred to as as asset protection so uh, for example bobs on the top marginal tax rate and assuming he's he's employed let's say he's a director of a company subject to personal liability in certain circumstances like uh, for insolvent trading and for unpaid SG, PYG and GST of an entity that he's a director of potentially. So there's a risk of personal liability. And if there is a risk of personal liability, it's often not advised from an asset protection perspective to, to have assets in Bob's personal name. Whereas holding the assets in Sally's name or in some other structure like a discretionary trust or company owned by a discretionary trust will will result in a better asset protection outcome. But Andrew, the only way Bob can negatively gear the land is if he holds it in his own name. Because if the land sits within a trust, for example, the, the losses are trapped within the trust. So that is kissing negatively gearing goodbye. Absolutely correct. So if negative gearing is, so with, with negative gearing, what we're referring to there is assuming Bob and Sally need to get bank finance for the purchase of this property, then is that interest that they're going to incur on the purchase of the property deductible? Firstly, is it deductible? And secondly, can it be used to offset other income of that person incurring the interest? So If Bob's on a high tax rate, then it would be in the best interest of the group for deductions for that interest to be incurred personally by Bob so that he can therefore apply those straight away against the other income that he has. In contrast, if the, if the borrower is some other entity, or perhaps there's no borrowings even required. In those circumstances, the considerations change because we're no longer considering negative gearing, we may place greater emphasis on that asset protection benefit because that negative gear, uh, gearing driver is, is not there. Okay. And now if you put asset protection aside, we are, we are fine with that because, for example, Bob isn't the is just a pure employee and he isn't the director of another company. And so if we just solely focus on negatively gearing, that's, that's our ultimate goal. Is it, is it possible? Is it straightforward possible? Or is there a risk that the land is seen as part of a, of a loss-making business, it needs to go against the income from the business, and hence can only be tax-deducted once it passes the commercial loss provision? And I can imagine that your answer is it depends on who, who owns the business and who owns the land. If it's the same entity, then there's probably a risk that the land is that the interest on the land is counted as part of a business cost. But if it's two different entities who own one and the other, then it's probably possible to negatively gear without being touched by the commercial loss provisions. Is that is that right? Yeah, it's it's a complex issue. So so and, and you're right, it does depend on who's owning the land, who's running the business. So going back to basics, we've got section eight dash one of the 1997 Tax Act says that you can deduct a loss or outgoing that you incur to the extent it is incurred in the course of gaining or producing your assessable income or alternatively in the course of carrying on a business. So in other words, we need a nexus between loss or outgoing, which is the interest deduction, so by having to pay interest, and 
that interest cost being incurred in the course of gaining or producing accessible income or carrying on a business. So that's a complex uh, pr- provision uh, and it's the, the, the general deduction provision. We, we firstly need to have some prospect of profit. So in other words, if the, the hobby farm in question is purely something for personal use and you know, there's a couple of cows on the property just to keep the grass down. To entertain the children. Entertain the children. Then there's no real prospect of profit. There's probably no business being carried on. And it would be difficult to say that those interest costs are incurred in the course of gaining or producing accessible income when there are there is no accessible income or there's a very weak link to any accessible income. Let's say the farm has 50 steers or something, you know, already a number that puts it onto the verge of commercial viability, although it's very difficult within four hours of Sydney or Melbourne to probably make a profit on just 50 50 heads of cattle. But let's just assume they have more than two cows, so something that already looks like like a farm. There is probably no clear line, you know, one can't say, okay, from 20 heads of cattle, it's it's a hobby and from 30 heads of cattle, it's, it's, a, it's a business. So it's probably a gray area and probably difficult to, to discuss. Yeah, well, assuming you, you, you get over that first hurdle that it is sufficiently business-like and not a hobby, the second point that I'd make is it's your negative gearing position is going to be a lot easier in one sense if the borrowing entity is the same as the asset owning entity and the business running entity. Because in that circumstance, it's going to be clear that the the entity will have incurred interest and is running a business other than the commercial loss rules. It would be pretty clear that that's a cost incurred in carrying on that business. Yes, I agree. I agree. But at the same time, you have the commercial loss provisions. And it probably is very highly likely that the farm won't, when you take interest into account, that the farm won't create a profit for for quite a while to come. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So then if you move away from, from that duality of asset ownership and business running well what other scenarios could we have we could have we could have the asset being owned by a trust but if that's the case then there's a clear break between incurring the interest expense and the possible production of income you're looking for income but the income would be then basically lease income so whoever owns the land would then lease the land to the farm and the leasing rates are usually less than interest cost. So you basically rent it out. You treat it like a rental property and then you use the land in a different entity to run the business. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, and I'll come to that leasing an, uh, analogy, sorry, that leasing example in a second. So other sort of alternatives are you could, if, if the borrowing was in personal names, but the asset ownership wanted to be in another entity, you could consider putting in place uh, a back-to-back lending arrangement. So for example, Bob would on-lend funds to the purchasing entity. Now, that's pretty uncontroversial if the same rate of interest applied to both those loans being the the bank loan and then the on-loan. But the result of that would be that for Bob, 
uh, there's no negative, negative gearing. gearing per se because the amount payable to the bank is the same amount that is uh, derived from the related entity. So in other words, essentially those excess deductions would be in the purchasing entity and therefore not able to be negatively geared. So you're back in the same problem. Well, how do we use, uh, how do we possibly negatively gear? So another consideration is the one that, that you flagged, Heidi, which is if the land is purchased by Bob and it's leased to another entity. So we're talking personal. We've decided that asset protection or estate planning um, risks are not the most important in this scenario and, and getting that negatively gearing benefit of offsetting income now is, is of greater value. Then can we lease the asset from Bob to, to some other entity? If you're an asset owner and leasing the property, firstly, you're probably not carrying on a business because merely being a, a passive landlord doesn't mean that you're carrying on a business. Yes, but that's good, Andrew, because it means the commercial loss provisions don't affect us. So it's actually good. Yeah, yeah. So so with Section 8.1, we're not talking about carrying on a business. So we just need to have a nexus between the interest income and gaining or producing accessible income, which in this case would be lease fees. So if we if we if we take the scenario where the interest is greater than the lease fees, we're left with the scenario with an effective negative gearing scenario where there's an excess deduction and can that be claimed against any uh, income? Just going to the commercial loss rules first before before um, tackling other parts of that. Commercial loss rules apply for essentially non-commercial business activities that are carried out by individual taxpayers. And essentially the rules restrict the ability to apply those losses against other income. For this very reason, um, you've got high uh, income taxpayers who earn a salary elsewhere and, and wanting to deduct losses from a hobby farm against that income. So here, we're not talking about business activities being carried on by an individual taxpayer. We're talking about the the business activities being carried on by some other entity, whether um, company or trust. So I actually don't think you're in non-commercial loss rules at all. You don't need to worry about whether or not any of those tests to get out of the non-commercial loss rules apply or not. So in other words, we're not in Division 35, which is the non-commercial loss rules. If the activities of the individual don't constitute a business, in other words, it's passive income, which yes. for the individual, it is passive income. Yes, and you're only safe from the commercial loss provisions if the uh, business is run by a different entity to the to the entity that's owning the land. If Bob was running the business as well as owning the land, then there's a high risk that then the interest would go into the business setup and hence would be subject to the commercial loss rules. But since we have separated it and we have two different entities who do one and the other, then the um, negative gearing from Bob is safe from the commercial loss rules, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So there is where you've got excess of deductions over income and it's it's due to related party transactions. There is 
a couple of more things to consider. So generally when you're working out whether an, a loss or outgoing is incurred in gaining or producing accessible income, the general rule is when you, when you work out, is it for that purpose? It's an objective purpose. In other words, it's not for the commissioner to say, oh, look, you know, you should have, you should have carried on your business better or you, you, sh- you didn't need to pay that much. The, the general position is it's up to the taxpayer to work out what, what's being incurred. And if, if that results in some accessible income, then it's deductible. The situation is a little bit different where you do have related party transactions and there's a string of case law, which is mainly about tax avoidance cases in the 1980s. And the principle coming out of those cases, and particularly Eura and Fletcher's case, is that subjective purpose can be relevant in characterizing outgoings when there's a disproportion between the income and the outgoing. So this is a potential risk in this scenario of interest and lease fees. I think it is probably okay, but I wanted to draw your attention to, there's actually a case on this particular area and it's called Jan Moore nominees. So in that case, we had a family trust that borrowed money to purchase a property and it leased the property to the individual who controlled the trust. And that individual was a doctor. It was stated that their intention of doing this arrangement and acquiring the property in a trust rather than personally was to provide asset protection and negative gearing benefits. The commissioner attacked the arrangement and the matter went to federal court, full federal court, in fact, and ultimately, what was what was found as a result of that case was that the the trust or the trustee company, more correctly, was allowed to deduct the entire amount of the interest payment. So it's in contrast with some other cases where those excess deductions have been shot down. But in this case, which is quite similar to the example we're, we're using, there's clearly a commercial return being provided. The interest is to a bank, so it's not a related party. And the amount of the lease is also a commercial amount. If that amount was some amount way above market rates, then you would have problems. But if that rent was a commercial rent, then the fact that there's a disproportion between the two wouldn't affect the deductibility of that excess amount. So it was actually the family trust who bought the land and then the doctor lent the money to the trust and received interest income. Yeah, so it's the other way around or the other way around, but the principle yeah. is still the same. The trust yes. had the the in- interest deduction and the trust had the lease income. And then, of course, you could also imagine it the other way around, that the individual buys the land and receives a loan from the trust. Because with this first structure you mentioned, the um, doctor actually has interest income, which is probably at a top margin rate. So it achieves exactly the opposite of of uh, negatively gearing. But if we now 
turned it around so that we get to a negatively gearing example. In that case, the doctor would buy the land and then receive a loan from the trust and the trust would have interest income and then could distribute that interest income to other beneficiaries with lower marginal tax rates. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, while that different scenario isn't in, isn't on all fours with this particular case and you couldn't rely on the, the, the exact same uh, facts as this case, I think the principle is still there that as long as the arrangements are commercial still, the fact that there is a gap between the two, um, between the income and the deduction doesn't affect the deductibility of the deduction. Yes, I agree. It's an important point. So basically, as long as you charge what third-party people would charge, you're fine. And so it also just means that, for example, the leasing rates, so if Bob buys the land and then leases it to the um, company, it just means that those leasing rates need to be at arm's length. So they need to be at a price that other farmers would pay for this for this land or pay or charge for this type of land. Yep. And there should be some evidence of that that can be demonstrated if if the ATO was ever to look uh, or audit those deductions. Okay. So we basically have negatively gearing covered. And it means if Bob wants to negatively gear, he needs to hold the land in his own name and then he can lease it out to another entity as long as he leases it out at arm's length at commercial prices. Yeah, that's correct. That's a good summary. And yeah, that, that, that is correct. Yeah. Good. Okay. So then the next question is land tax. Would the land qualify as primary production and hence be land tax exempt since we, we, we cut the nexus between the farming business and the land, we cut that nexus so that we can negatively gear and are not affected by the um, commercial loss provisions. But now, of course, we want this nexus back because we want to be land tax exempt as primary production. So is that possible? Is it possible to make a land land tax exempt even though the farm is not run by the owner of the um, land? The answer to this question is simpler than the negative gearing question. Uh, the good news here is generally for land tax, and I should note that land tax is state-based tax, so it will differ from state to ta state. And my experience is in New South Wales and Victoria land tax. For land tax, what's relevant is generally the use of the land, not who's using the land. So just to state that again, if the user of the land and the owner of the land are different, it's generally okay from a land tax exemption perspective because what is the critical thing is what is the land being used for rather than who is using the land. So that's terrific. That means Bob can own the land negatively geared and still be land tax and still have the land exempt from land tax. Yeah, yeah. So for example, if we're talking about New South Wales, then there's a difference between where it's zoned in terms of what's required, but that difference only looks at the character of the use, you know, how much of a business-like activity it is. And But so long as it's used for one of the stated primary production purposes, like maintaining animals for, for their increase, uh, cultivating crops, bees, etc., then it doesn't matter who uses it. Yes. In contrast, in Victoria, it's actually a little bit different. In Victoria, there's a number of different land tax exemptions depending on whether the land is in 
Greater Melbourne or elsewhere in Victoria. If it's elsewhere in Victoria, again, we're fine because, again, it just assesses is the land being used for primary production purposes. But the exemptions get stricter and stricter the closer you get to Melbourne. Yeah, to prevent land banking. Yeah, to prevent land banking. And, and the most strict is where the land's in an urban zone and in Greater Melbourne. And in that scenario, it's not just enough for the land to be used for primary production. There's quite complex ownership and relation requirements that need to be worked through. And they're, they're, they are complex. Um, they will depend on who the owner is and who the, which entity owns the land and which entity runs the business. But they do need to be worked through to check. And generally, it should be okay as long as it's within the family. But they, they do need to be worked through. And it, it, it may be different in other states as well. Next question. What about the farmhouse that's on the land? Um, it can't be exempt as a main residence because Bob and Sally already have a main residence. Can it fall under the primary production exemption since it's only used while they are working on the farm? Yeah, I, I did a little bit of research onto this and, and I wasn't able to find a conclusive answer straight away. But my understanding is that it would depend on how the land's titled. So if the farmhouse is on its own separate title away from the farm, uh, I think it would be difficult to get a primary production land tax exemption. Whereas if the title is just one large title, then if you're assessing the use of the land, well, the, the, the main use or the primary use or the substantial use, whichever way you want to cut it, is for primary production. And really any accommodation is really ancillary to that. So I think you would be okay if you're just dealing with one title, which has a farmhouse, then you should be able to get a land tax exemption for primary production over the entire land. Would the answer change if the farmhouse is used by a manager? So if Bob and Sally employ a manager to help them with running the farm and if the manager is living in the farmhouse? I think it would still be the same. That that, that use of the land, uh, if, you can, if you consider the entire parcel of land, is, is pretty low and insignificant to the farm as a whole. And taking that approach would just result in a lot of difficulties on working out which part of the land is the farmhouse versus the rest. And in most cases, I, I, I would guess that that's a very, very small percentage of the overall land. So I think it would be in all exempt for land tax. Good. So that means it all depends on how the titles are laid out on the land. If the farmhouse is not on its own title, but it's just part of one large big title, then it's exempt. It just falls under the general exemption because the, the main purpose of the land is primary production. But if the house sits on its own title, then it probably won't be exempt. Yeah. Yep. That's correct. And now stamp duty. I assume that there's nothing that Bob and Sally can do about stamp duty now when they buy the farm. But I assume, I understand that there is a possibility to have an exemption when they transfer the farm to their children at some stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is uh, primary production land is one of the areas where there is duty exemptions. Again, duty is state specific. So my comments are going to be in relation to Victoria and New South Wales. But my understanding is there is broadly equivalent um, duty exemptions in other states, but the details do differ. I'll, I'll take you through an example of the difference between the Victorian and the New South Wales one. So in New South Wales, we've got section 274 of the Duties Act, 
And that allows for transfers of certain um, certain primary production land between family members. The land itself needs to be an integral part of a business of primary production. Sorry, sorry, let's take that comment out. That's not correct, sorry. Um, so in order for the exemption to apply in New South Wales, the land needs to be used for primary production. So that should be the case if it's if it's exempt from, from a land tax perspective. And then there are requirements for the transferor and transferees. If it's going from Bob and Sally to their children, that should be exempt from a duty perspective. The exemption allows transfers from individuals to related individuals within um, within a family unit. And it doesn't matter that Bob owns the land, but the company's running the farm. No, no. It, it looks at whether the whether the land is used in uh, primary production. So if the land's used in primary production, then it can be transferred between family members. Now, I, I note the difference between New South Wales and Victoria here because the New South Wales duty exemption allows certain transfers from companies and unit trusts to individuals, but it doesn't allow transfers from individuals to companies or discretionary trusts. So in other words, if Bob and Sally wanted to, to instead transfer it to their children's discretionary trust, the duty exemption would not cover that. Uh, it would be subject to duty. And what about a testamentary trust? Testamentary trust would be okay. Any, any transfers under a will are exempt from duty. So if it was to pass via their will, either to individuals or to a testamentary trust, then that would be okay because transfers under under wills are exempt. So you don't even need to go to this um, this duty exemption. Okay. So if you want to sell the farm while you're still alive to your children, then you can sell it to individual names, but you can't sell it to a trust or a company in New South Wales. But if you just pass it on through your will into a testamentary trust, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, then it doesn't matter. Then there is no tax. There is not stamp duty. Yeah, correct. So, and 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 in Victoria, for example, it's a little bit more relaxed in terms of those transfer requirements. So, just one example of that is that you can actually transfer from the individuals to a discretionary trust, so long as that discretionary trust has some restrictions placed on it on who it can distribute to. Just needs to make sure that. Basically, it stays within the family, uh, within a sort of a more tightly defined family group. So there is differences between each state on the, the the duty exemption as well. But in general, if it's to if it's from parents to children, it's it's fine, and probably anywhere in Australia, it's fine. If it's from parents to a trust or a company, then you need to read the fine print. In New South Wales, it's an issue. In Victoria, it probably isn't an issue, but you need to read the fine print for that particular state or territory. Absolutely. That's correct. Then loss carry forwards. Let's assume the farm starts making a profit and also because the high interest rates are outside of the um, company and the company only pays lower leasing rates at commercial market prices. So now the um, 
farm starts making a profit and hence could offset those profits against tax loss carry forwards. And it could be that the farm is actually run through that very company or it could be that the company holds the shares in this new company that runs the farm and then receives dividend income. But you can use the tax loss carry forwards because the shareholding of the loss making company hasn't changed. So if we're looking at losses in companies, uh, we need to consider whether one or two integrity tests are met. The first being the same or substantially similar business tests, which would clearly not be met if those losses came about as a result of some other business. So we'd need to rely on the continuity of ownership test requiring the ultimate owners of the shares have not changed between the time of the losses and the time of the utilization. So if we're not talking about any changes in share ownership, then uh, we shouldn't have a problem with the continuity of ownership test. And yes, either the business could be run through that company. However, if that was the case, you'd have to consider whether there's any possible skeletons in the closet with that company, possibly relating to its former business activities. Or as an alternative, you could have the lost company owning shares in another company. And in that scenario, the subsidiary would have to pay tax declare a dividend and the the head company would they would get a franking credit which they then get paid is it out. refundable to a company i assume so i never thought of that it couldn't companies can claim franking credits like anybody else are you wondering whether the franking credits can actually be paid out so yes companies can claim the tax offset but whether they, whether it's actually refundable i see so it's not refundable it's not refundable yeah so i was just looking it up i just it just you know, it's going off in my head. I'm like, mm, yeah, let me check that. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's not refundable to a company. So, okay, so that means it wouldn't work having it wouldn't work having the profit making farm in a, in a in a company subsidiary because it would mean that the subsidiary pays pays tax, which you then can't get refunded in the loss making company. So that doesn't work. So the next solution would be that you have the farm being run through a trust and then this trust distributes the income to the loss making company and then no tax is paid. So when we're looking at utilizing the carry forward losses in the company, the simplest option would be to run the business, the farming business through that company. You've got the same entity, so you can you can apply the income against the carry forward losses. The only thing to consider in that scenario is whether, firstly, whether you'd like the business run through a company and secondly, uh, whether there could be sort of any asset protection claim type issues against that company in respect of its former business activities. And another option suggested would be to incorporate a subsidiary company to run the business. But the problem with that is that franking credits are not refundable. So if the subsidiary was to make income, declare a dividend to the holding company, as in the loss company, it wouldn't be able to get that money back and it would essentially still carry forward losses. Another alternative would be to run the business through a discretionary trust and have the trust make distributions of that income to the company. Good. So that basically means you have two options. You either run it through the loss-making company or you create a trust. I can imagine that that lawyers prefer running the farm through a trust because then 
you don't have cross yeah you don't don't have cross collateration or how do you yeah i think i think i think yes yeah separation of um assets and yeah yeah so i think i think in that if it's faced with those two choices that probably lean towards the trust running the business through the discretionary trust making distributions to the company and then ensuring that they're actually uh paid as well and dealing with any division 7a issues of course then the next question is succession to the uh, next generation would the small business cgt concessions apply upon sale to their children and Does it matter that land ownership and business ownership are in different hands? The small business CGT concessions are incredibly confusing. potent. Well, they're, 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 firstly, they are very confusing, but they're also very valuable. So it's usually worth taking the time to understand, firstly, how they work. Can we get them? And do we need to change the structure or consider changing the structure so that we can get them? They can apply to internal restructures and also external sales. Of course, if the if the property was passing through a will, then you would have Division 128 about effects of death and we wouldn't need to worry about any small business concessions and we'd have historical cost base rolling forward. But assuming we've got some sort of transfer during life, then there's really two things to consider. The first is the small business nature of the, the small nature. And the second is the business nature. So in terms of the small requirement, either if the, if the land's owned by Bob and Sally or just Bob, that person needs to be either a CGT small business entity, meaning that they carry on a business with turnover of less than $2 million, Or alternatively, they satisfy the $6 million net asset value test, which excludes things like main residences, superannuation, and other personal use assets. Or as an alternative, uh, you can have an affiliate or an entity connected with you that is a small business CGT entity and carries on a business in relation to that asset. So in the case of the business being conducted by an entity other than Bob, we can't rely on Bob being a CGT small business entity unless he's carrying on some other business uh, as an individual. So we'd either need to go through the $6 million net asset value test or ensure that that other entity is connected and has turnover of less than $2 million. So we've got two ways in still. Basically, your $6 million net asset value test or your your $2 million turnover, uh, ensuring there's an appropriate connection between the two entities. If it's if it's um, Bob owning the land and, and a trust running the business and, and Bob controls the trust, then we, sh we should be okay. And the same if the farm runs through the company and Sally is the 100% shareholder, then it should be okay as well because Bob and Sally are a couple. If Sally was the owner, ultimately the owner of the the asset, then under the normal small business concession rules, you, you would have a problem because you would need to establish that Bob and Sally were affiliates. However, there's a special rule in 152-47 that deems spouses to be affiliates in certain circumstances when assets are owned by one entity but used in another's business. And the purpose of it is basically to ensure that this link is is um, is made out. So, so long as it's just Bob and Sally involved in it, then we shouldn't have any problems. It would only get more complex if you've got multiple owners of both the, 
land and the business so such that there is no one who can be linked. So that means basically so far everything is going really well. Bob owns the land, negatively gears the land. The uh, company or a separate trust runs the business. Any profits are offset against the uh, tax loss carry forward. Land tax exempt, small business CGT concessions will apply if it meets the two million and six million dollar threshold. So, so far everything is going really well. I think. Yep. With the concessions, sorry, the other the other part to the concessions is the active asset test side of things. So the the land in question needs to be an active asset for more than half the period of ownership. And to be an active asset, it needs to be used in a business that's carried on either by the owner or their affiliate or connected entity. And for that affiliate or connected entity point, that's going to be the same test, essentially. So the issue is really just ensuring that the land is sufficiently used. So taxpayers can run into some problems where you've got large parcels of land, but perhaps not all the land is used for farming. Yeah, so make sure you have cattle on every paddock. But also, it means we only need to really watch out for this for seven and a half years. Once we are past seven and a half years, it doesn't really matter even if Bob and Sally get old and struggle running the farm, but don't want to sell yet. Um, they are fine because at least for seven and a half years, they ran the farm on all paddocks. Yes, you're, you're quite right. It's a seven and a half year test and it's a historical test. So you can have quite unusual circ, um, circumstances and situations that, that come up. You, you you could say Bob and Sally could have acquired the land in 1990 and ran a farm on it for 10 years. And then since the year 2000, they've just used it for personal use and not run a business on it. Now, Fast forward to year 2020, that land could be disposed of and it would meet the active asset test. So in other words, to get the concessions, the only other bit you'd need to meet is either be a small business or meet the $6 million net asset value test. So you can still get some quite unusual situations. So, so it's why it's always worth inquiring whenever someone holds land, was there any business use at any point? And in the scenario you just described, All is well with respect to the small business CGT concessions. But of course, if Bob and Sally stop farming the land in 2000, it means they would probably incur land tax from then on. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. That's a good point. And then last question is transfer to an SMSF. I can't really see any reason why you would even consider transferring it to an SMSF because A, you probably don't get it into the uh, SMSF anyway because this farmland, you probably struggle to get it in th through the concession thresholds. And then also you have a contribution tax on it, unless of course you're already in pension mode, but You know, I, I really can't see any reason why you would transfer a farm to an SMSF, even though when I did discussions of F SMSFs, it was very often discussed having the farm in an SMSF. But the other op the other risk is also death tax at the end. When Bob and Sally die and they don't have any tax dependence, you run into possible death tax. And hence, I can't see any reason why you would put a farm that you want to hand from generation to generation to put such a farm into an SMSF. Yeah, look, I think that's a really good summary. When, Whenever I talk to clients about their desire to move property into super fund, there, there's a lot of things to consider. And while there are some really big benefits that can potentially be there, namely the the concessionary tax rate of either zero or 15%. percent. 
there's a lot of potential negatives, either that what you're proposing can't be done, or if it can be done, there's still, you know, things to consider down the line. So just just working through those issues to taking a step back to, to start with, you can only transfer from an individual to an SMSF if firstly the property is business real property. If it's not business real property, you'll breach the related party rules by by having a transaction between a member and super fund. So, and would the land count as business property, given that Bob doesn't use it for business, but Sally does? Yeah. So, so there's a really good ruling from the ATO. It's SMSFR 2009/1, and it's 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 quite a good reference point when when talking about business real property. So, to answer that first question. It's an asset's business real property if it's wholly and exclusively used in a business. Again, it doesn't require, again, it looks at use rather than uh, who is using it. So in that sense, it's similar to the land tax exemption. The ruling also does mention farmhouses and it says that those are okay as long as they're minor insignificant or quite small uses of the land. So the fact that there might be a farmhouse on there and it might be stayed at by the members could theoretically still be okay so long as that portion is 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 a very small portion, similar to what we talked about about the land tax exemption. So with that, it probably also matters whether it's on, on its own title or just part of a big title? Again, yep, yep, similar considerations. So, so if we can get across the line on... Firstly, the property being business real property, then we then need to consider, well, how is it actually going to even be transferred to an SMSF? And there's, there's really two ways. One is to use existing cash resources. So in other words, the SMSF buys the property. So there's a, there's a transfer of cash. Let's say the, bill, the land's worth $1 million and the fund has a million dollars, then now the fund going forward will have a land worth a million dollars and um, Bob and Susan will have uh, cash of a million dollars. And that would trigger stamp duty, I assume? Well, I'll come to the stamp duty in a second. Okay. So it's different okay. in each state. Yeah. The alternative is to use contribution caps and do what's called an in-specie transfer. It's a fancy Latin word meaning in kind. So in other words, what would be contributed is not cash, but a property. So that could be done under various concession um, caps. So it could be done under concessional, the non-concessional, theoretically the downsizer cap, or um, most commonly the small business CGT concessions cap, concessionary of, of any of those. Yes, that's true. That's actually true. Under CGT concession caps, you can get quite a large substantial amount into the SMSF. You might not get it all into the pension mode, but at least you can get it into the SMSF. And then also you can use the bring forward rules, which basically means you can up your non-concessional contributions up to 300,000 per spouse. Yeah, so per spouse, we're talking about non-concessional is 100 going to 110 next year. So we're talking about 300 to 330 using the bring forward rule each, subject to the overall balance of the fund not being above between 1.4 and 1.6 million. So you can get some in during using that, but if you can use the concessions, you can potentially put up to $1.6 million each into a fund. So often these things will usually only work if, if you can make some pretty substantial contribution using the small business concessions. And then there's a third way, and that is LRBA. So the first, the first one is buying 
The second one is contributions and the third one is LRBA. And yeah, with a combination of all three together, you you might be able to get the, the farm into the SMSF. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The third option is that the, the super fund will, will take a borrowing to acquire that asset and, and you'll have a LRBA arrangement either from a bank that's willing to do one of those or even possibly some related party so long as it um, complies with the relevant rules. So turning to the duty side of things, Again, duty is different state by state, and this is one area where the, the, the rules actually are quite different between the states. So in New South Wales, it's a bit of a flip from what we were talking about earlier. The rules are more concessionary. They apply, the, the duty concession is in section 62A, and it says that duty of nominal duty of $500 applies to a transfer from members of a super fund to the super fund, essentially. And the only restrictions or requirements is that if there's multiple members of the fund, it needs to be segregated. So it's only held on behalf of those particular members. So if we've got a fund with Bob and Sally and two children, then it needs to be segregated so that 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 property is only for the benefit of Bob and Sally. But it just applies to transfers. It doesn't talk about whether there's consideration payable or not. It's just transfers. So any any transaction, in other words, from the individuals to the super fund would be exempt. If we're talking about land owned by a company or a discretionary trust, that's not a transfer from a member to a super fund. So those transfers are unlikely to be exempt. So in contrast that with Victoria, in Victoria, the, the duty exemption is in section 41 of their Duties Act, which says that Again, it talks about a transfer, but it talks about it has to be a transfer without monetary consideration. So to the extent that money is paid, duty applies, but um, to the extent it's done uh, sort of, you know, as an in-species contribution, uh, duty does not apply to that part of it. So if it's if it's half a contribution, half sale, then it's half duty. But if it's a full sale, then it's it's full duty in um, in Victoria. And each, each each state varies. So of the three options to get a farm into an SMSF, being sale, contributions, and LRBA, the sale potentially will trigger stamp duty depending on which state it is in. Yep, correct. And then as you alluded to earlier, Less if members text. of the yeah, if members of the super fund die, they, they are ultimately the well. Sorry, before we get to that, when the when the fund goes into pension phase, it needs to start making payments each year. Yes, to, and that can be members. difficult because and those, the farm is yeah, a asset. Those can really ramp up to I think around ten percent. If you've got an illiquid asset and you don't have any cash or don't have sufficient cash reserves, it can actually force you into a situation where the property has to be sold. So that can be a real issue. Assuming you're okay with that, the other issue is on death. Benefits need to be paid out to either to the estate or to to individuals. So you've got essentially that death tax, and 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 yes, if they're not paid to dependents, then you've got um, the the fifteen percent or potentially higher tax that would apply. So if it's if it's a multi generational long term play, then I agree with your conclusion, Heidi, that. It's probably best place not to have that in a in a self managed super fund because it's it's not really going to keep it for multi generations. And so to just summarize all the um, arguments against having it in SMSF, the first hurdle is really to even get it in with the thresholds. But let's assume we get it in. The second hurdle is that if you sell it, you incur stamp duty. 
possibly, depending on the state. The third one is that you need to make minimum pension payments from a certain age or you don't move into pension uh, mode. Then, of course, you don't have to. But if you want to move into pension mode, then you face minimum pension payments, which if there are no liquid funds, put the farm in real danger of having to be liquidated. And then the fourth hurdle, of course, is death tax. Yeah, no, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good summary. So that basically means, having looked at all this, I think the original structure we thought of still wins, I think, in that Bob owns the land directly, the farmers run through a company, through the loss-making company or through a discretionary trust, and then when the time is right, they pass it on to their children, hopefully claiming the small business CGT concessions so the children receive the farm with an boosted up cost base. Yeah, I think that's right in this scenario, in this scenario that we've posted. So in other words, Bob owns the land personally. He's borrowing from a bank. He's got interest deductions. The, the interest is deductible because he's leased the land and he's, and he's earning income from that lease. We're not worried about the non-commercial loss rules. We're able to apply those deductions against the other income. And then that business running entity either is the one with the losses or it's a trust that can distribute its income to that to that loss making entity. And, and yeah, we're not by doing that, we, we haven't created, well, most likely haven't created any issues regarding land tax exemptions or qualifying for small business concessions. So, so it makes sense. You can you could very easily change the facts here, which which could potentially change this this whole um, recommendation. However, so for example, as we talked about earlier, if there was asset protection risks against Bob, that could be a consideration. If uh, there was family dynamics where perhaps one of the children wasn't being provided for in the same way under the estate. That could change the situation because that that person might want to might consider making a um, uh, family provision or testator family maintenance claim against against the the land. There's so so those those would be something some things against personal ownership of the land. Other things to consider would be well, how's the land being financed? So in the, in the scenario where where it's bank debt, that, that makes sense. But what if we've got a group that has money in a company currently, and that money's being used? Would that would it be best to, to lend that money to the individual? But then we'd have to deal with Division Seven A, or should the company just purchase the land and and forego things like the CGT general discount? It definitely does depend on all of the facts, circumstances, and the things that are most important. It's definitely not um, not smooth sailing. So so it's important to get that advice up front and uh, commit to an appropriate structure. So you hold the land in individual names to allow for negative gearing, assuming that asset protection is not an issue. And then you run the farming business through a separate entity, preferably a trust. And then the separate entity then leases the farm from the individual. But of course, all this is generally speaking, of course, in the end, it all depends on the particular circumstances of a particular case. In the next episode, episode 291, Jerry Wambeek of Wow Connect will talk about inventory management. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.